Andrew Wiley is a world-renowned literary agent. His agency with offices in London and New York represents more than 1,400 authors living and dead, including Martin Amos, Salman Rushdie, Sally Rooney, Borges, Calvino, Auden, Bello, Roth, Sontag, Mailer, Kundera. The list of greats goes on and on. His project, when he established the firm in 1980, was to create a business based on the books he wanted to read. Welcome, Andrew Wiley, to The Bibliophile. Thank you. It seems to me that what you set out to do was pretty easy. You met with authors, you told them they were getting ripped off, and you said that you could make them more money. Well, that's not really accurate. Uh, The point was that there was a disparity between short-term value of best-selling authors and long-term value of authors of quality. And I felt that the long-term value was being uh, underappreciated and we were building a, a, an agency that would more accurately appreciate the long-term value of uh, writing uh, that endured rather than simply the bestseller list. So there's sort of two separate issues. One is, what's the value of Danielle Steele? Well, that can be figured out fairly uh, easily from uh, sales records. What is the value of Calvino or Nabokov or Borges? That is more difficult because it is, one, largely international, and two, it sells over time rather than in high volume uh, over a short period of time. It just goes to the point that publishers, the great publishers know, and that is you try and find great books. You try and publish great books because they're the backbone of your backlist. Yeah, I think <clears throat> publishers and, and agents had, as it were, overappreciated the immediate benefits of uh, bestsellerdom and had underappreciated long-term sales and literary significance. So, you know, what I thought was actually, you know, Shakespeare is more valuable than Danielle Steele, but uh, the way the publishing business is is set up now maintains somehow that Danielle Steele is more interesting and, and valuable than, say, Borges or Nabokov or... Calvino or Zebald. And I thought, well, that's not really uh, correct. You didn't want to sit around reading bestsellers, which you call the bound form of daytime television. Yeah. (laughs) Very good. But and I guess that's the thing. Some of the greatest, biggest sellers in their time are now, you know, 20, 50 years later. No one's ever heard of them. Right. As it should be. And people don't keep recordings of daytime television in order to uh, <clears throat> appreciate the quality of uh, the production uh, 10 years later. I wanted to get to how you got your clients to start with. Though It seems to me 
if you tell them, listen, you are not making as much money as you should. And I know of a way for you to make more money. That's very compelling to most people. What we do is we analyze uh, the international position of a writer's work country by country and do a, a, a presentation that actually shows what we would do if we were representing the author. So we say, here's where you are. Here's where we think you should be. And we can achieve this for you. Uh, if you want us to represent your work. So it's not vague. It's very specific. Yeah. Which makes it even more exciting. Interesting, at least. Plus what you do is you quote back their work to them at length. Well, I read a lot, so, you know. But you must have a pretty good memory to be able to do that, too, though. Uh, my memory is not as good as it used to be. I, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> memorized a lot of Finnegan's Wake uh, when I was young and, and the four quartets and uh, a lot of Yeats. And, uh, but I do less of that now. If you memorize, like memorizing Finnegan's Wake is a pretty quick, route to insanity if you ask me <laughs> well i was in a mental hospital when i memorized it so that's an appropriate <laughs> uh, uh comment <clears throat> okay how much extra revenue do you think the moniker jackal has earned you over the years i don't think the jackal thing is uh interesting um when we uh, take on a writer or an estate, we, uh, because of our global reach, uh, we're usually able to increase their revenues between three and 500%. Yeah, again, that's, <laughs> so, you know, you've just, you establish that pretty early on, you're going to have a bunch of authors banging down your door. Well, the authors weren't banging down our doors for a long period of time. And what I saw was that the lead agency at the time, which was ICM, and the lead publisher at the time, which was Knopf, and uh, the lead magazine at the time, The New Yorker, were all somewhat in cahoots. And I thought that writers who were at the time represented by ICM uh, frequently felt that they uh, were not being treated properly and appreciated properly. And so they were interested in moving to someone who valued their work more in tandem with what they thought it, it might be worth. <clears throat> I wondered about why that was, and I saw that uh, if you consider the track of the revenue, it goes from the publisher to the agent to the author. And I thought, well, these agencies have begun to think that they're in business with the publisher because of the uh, uh, because of the progress of the money. Uh, and actually, they are employed by the writer and uh, it should be considered as publisher and author have a relationship. An author and agent have a relationship. The agent works for the author, yeah, not yeah. for the publisher. 
And so frequently agencies, uh, understandably, had come to think, well, you know, we've got 30 clients with Knopf. And so our relationship with Knopf is actually more important than our relationship with those 30 writers. And I thought that's actually a misperception of the uh, relationship between an author and an agent. An agent is an employee, not a, uh, an administrator, as it were. And so agents tended to be somewhat condescending towards the writers they represented, as though, uh, you know, you're, you're a gardener and you're telling the person who owns the house uh, your idea of how the garden should look is completely wrong. And uh, I'm going to help you out aesthetically and uh, uh, just stay out of the way. You reference the fact in a great article that everyone else references all the time. It's the one that the Harvard Magazine did on you about 10 years ago. Then you reference the fact that both banking and editing were in your family. Your father, Craig, was the editor-in-chief at, I like to say Houghton Mifflin, and I don't want to change that. Is it Houghton Mifflin or Houghton Mifflin? It's Houghton. I just like to say Houghton Mifflin. Is that well? The- I I think it's okay now that it's owned by Rupert Murdoch. You you can mispronounce it as much as you want. <laughs> okay, so it sounds to me like that's what I mean. You you're the one who said that. You said you wanted to bring those two two practices together. Is that is that accurate? Well, I think the uh, financial uh, discipline of the uh, investment community uh, appealed to me, and it was in the DNA of our family, and and the interest in reading uh, was uh, very strong with my father and his family, and, and we had a big library, and I had a lot of sisters whom I wanted to avoid, so I spent a lot of time reading in the library. Yeah, I was blown away by the fact that you have five sisters. I just figured you're such a lucky man. You really are for that. Well, it taught me to get along with women. So most of uh, my colleagues in the agency are, are women. We, we have a couple of guys, but that's about it. Yeah. But still, being surrounded by five sisters, like, was it terrible or was it great? It, it drives you to Voltaire, I can tell you that. <laughs> And your father had a couple of monstrous sets, right? Or more. My father had three sets of Voltaire, and Voltaire wrote a lot. I think it was 57 volumes uh, for his yeah. complete works, and he had three sets of Voltaire, and uh, it was a delight. So what did you learn from Voltaire? Irony. Yeah, if you don't have that, you're... you're, uh, you're in- Poor shape in this world. Well, you're bored, you know. Right. The way you put it, I thought it was lovely. You you said that the best writers had the worst representation. Yeah, understandably, because, you know, uh, neither writers nor literary agents get paid particularly well. I mean, if you compare uh, the pay scales in the publishing industry to the pay scales on Wall Street, uh, you see that, uh, you know, uh, writers and literary agents have a pretty meager uh, revenue stream. So the agents are naturally drawn towards uh, the bestseller list and 
trying to uh, make as much money as possible just to make ends meet. Uh, I remember when I uh, initially tried to be an editor rather than an agent, um, I, I met with a couple of people and, and their view was sort of, are you reading James Clavell and James Michener? And I said, no. <laughs> they said, well, you're reading. And I said, Thucydides. And they looked at me as though, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd missed the boat completely. And my view was, well, not really. Uh, <laughs> Or, or at least I wondered whether, you know, there was another boat that I could uh, ride on instead of the uh, bestseller boat, which didn't interest me because uh, reading Michener and Clavel and Steele and King, and it's not of any interest to me. Did you go around the world sort of looking for great authors and for each different language and then pitching their estate to try? It didn't quite happen that way. I mean, what was uh, the progress uh, was that um, I saw that most agencies in the U.S. sold their foreign rights through a network of sub agencies and that system didn't work well. It was mysterious to me somewhat that that it didn't, but the fact of the matter is it didn't. And when I had a partner in England, Gillen Aitken, he would send books to me and I, I wouldn't connect with them in the same way that I would connect if, if I were there, the writer's agent. So I thought what we need to do in order to properly capture the value of the writers we represent on an international basis is we need to have as much authority in the French and German and Italian and Spanish and Chinese markets as we have in New York. And so I I started traveling around the world, which I did for many years, 30 years, uh, every month, going to publishing capitals around the world, meeting the publishers, talking to them, assessing their markets. And one uh, strategy certainly was, well, if we're going to have as much authority in in France as we have in New York, uh, we should probably represent the Camus estate and uh, if we're going to have authority in Germany, we should represent Zebalt. And if we're going to have authority in Italy, we should represent Calvino. And if we're going to have authority in Japan, we should represent Mishima, Kawabata, Enchi, Abe, Inoue, and Oe. And so we, we went about it in order to, as it were, have a position in each country, uh, which would benefit the writers we represented. So if you, if you, basically have a, a, a third party relationship with the uh, publishers of the writers you represent, if their rights are acquired through another agency in another country, then when you show up at the door of the publishing company, they don't take you very seriously because they don't really know who you are and you haven't been negotiating with them and you don't know the practices of their industry uh, on a local basis. Whereas if you represent Borges, you find out a lot about the Spanish publishing industry. And when we first took on Borges, uh, you know, there were two separate agreements, one in Spain, the other in Latin America, and uh, his rights were a shambles. Uh, they were controlled by one or the other Spanish language publisher. No one was paying attention to anything anywhere. It was a mess. So we cleaned that all up. So how did you do this, though? Well, first of all, you had contacts that 
allowed you to get in the door with the people that ran the estate? Is that what happened? Um, well, with Borges, I spent uh, a few years telling everyone I met that I wanted to represent Borges. And finally, one day, I had a phone call uh, from the street from Maria Kadama, Borges' widow, and she asked if I would like to meet. And <laughs> so she had heard through the grapevine that I would, in fact, like to meet. She's what? She's Maria Kodama? Yeah. Uh, she speaks English uh, in the same way that a hummingbird speaks English, <laughs> more, more or less. Um, <laughs> It's sometimes difficult to parse. But obviously she understood the value that you were bringing to the table. I think so, yeah. Okay. I'm just trying to get at how did you present yourself to these various estates? It was always granular. It was always, look, yeah. here's where you are in France and here's where you should be in France. And the result of a move yeah. where yeah. you should be will be increased uh, sales and revenue and and uh, a more accurate appreciation of your work in that local market. So, mm-hmm. you know, with with Philip Roth, by way of example, you know, Philip had sold his foreign rights to his U.S. publisher and uh, it wasn't working well and he was with the wrong publishers in many territories he was undervalued across the world and actually when his reputation soared with the uh, four great american history novels they soared first in france second in italy third in germany and fourth in the u.s and and Uh, people think well actually philip soared in the U.S. and the rest of the world came to the table. Not right. He soared outside and it came back into the U.S. That's fascinating. And with a writer of quality, what happens around the world should be about 50% of your revenues. And because of the system of sub-agenting, that 50% cumulative that came from the foreign markets was not being captured. And and so agents were, you know, focusing exclusively on, on the U.S. market or the U.K. market or, or if they were French agents on the French market and, and selling rights without any proper evaluation of the value of those rights. And again, what's that evaluation? What's proper? You look at the sales track, you look at whether... Publisher B would pay an additional amount in order to wrest the rights away from publisher A. You look at the stability of publisher B and, and you, you don't go just for the revenue. You look at, at who can market, uh, the writer properly and, and which house presents the better and more accurate context for the presentation of the work. So for instance, in France, we felt that Calvino really belonged with uh, Folio in paperback, the Gallimard paperback house, rather than with the house who had published him for a long time. And kicking and screaming, we moved Calvino across. Gallimard wasn't that intrigued, frankly, but they accepted our uh, negotiating terms. And uh, it's done extremely well. And, And Calvino's presence in the French market has has markedly increased uh, since the move was made. Yeah, I mean, anytime you can get Gallimard to to publish 
something of yours, you're you're doing very well. Well, Gallimard is a very big house now, and it's it's different than it was in the eighties. You know, it it's a little bit um, perhaps too pleased with itself now. <clears throat> so you know, that's a weird. And so okay, so who if it's not Gallimard, who would you go to then? Well, we like Gallimard a lot and uh, always have. And I like Antoine Gallimard personally, uh, although we've had our differences. You know, it's, it's a beautiful house uh, with a great uh, history and, and, and a great context. A great garden. Spectacular <laughs> garden. But, you know, Gallimard, to my mind, is, is, there's a similarity between what we did and what uh, happened at Gallimard, which is if you're presenting a writer of quality and the context from which you're presenting it is a bunch of bestsellers, then you're sort of, you've got a mixed message. And if you come and say, you know, Sally Rooney is really interesting and your other clients are Daniel Steele and Stephen King, then publishers say, you know, well, do they actually know what matters or are they just making money? So, you know, I felt that if if the context of the agency were such and we had uh, writers of a really extraordinary consequence that other young writers of consequence would want to be uh, yeah. connected to them and and related to them. So yeah. that, you know, if, if you represent Borges and Nabokov and Calvino and yeah. Zabalt yeah. and you say yeah. Sally Rooney matters, uh, publishers tend to think, well, they know what matters. You know what yeah. you're doing? You're, you're doing exactly what a great publishing house does. I mean, the great publishing house has great writers and younger writers aspire to being in their, uh, on their list. It's yeah. just the same thing. That's interesting. Talking about foreign rights, how useful is Frankfurt? Uh, Frankfurt is my idea of heaven. I adore Frankfurt. It's extremely useful. How is it? It reminds me of the way I used to feel and all children feel when school is reopening in September. You know, it's, (laughs) it's, you know, a little bit of dread and a lot of excitement. It's useful because you you sit with the people you have been doing business with largely remotely and you talk and you you have a real exchange of ideas across a small crowded table. You can't do that on the phone or no. Zoom? No, it's the same problem with working remotely. I mean, there's a different uh, engagement if you're face-to-face with a person rather than on Zoom or uh, on the phone. For sure. Yeah, for sure. What's the most fun you've had with your clothes on in the business? We had a lot of fun selling the Satanic Verses. Okay. Pre or post fatwa? Uh, pre. No, post took on a momentum of its own, but but pre was really uh, where the analysis that we do uh, came into play. So Rushdie was selling uh, Midnight's Children and Shame had been selling two or three hundred thousand copies in England and selling. 
20,000, 18 or 20,000 copies in the U.S. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense because the U.S. market is so much bigger than the U.K. market. And what we need to do is we need to find a publisher uh, who appreciates the sales track in the U.K. and applies it to the strategy in the U.S., So what we need is an English language publisher with one foot in London and one foot in New York. But we don't want to undervalue uh, the book by achieving that. So what we did was uh, I went to London and submitted to UK publishers. And then I returned to New York and submitted to US publishers. And I took the two high prices and went to Penguin and said, here's what we want. We didn't quite get it, but we got a little bit less. But then we had a a company that was engaged that understood uh, and could capture the UK value and assumed correctly that the US value would be greater than the UK value, whereas it had previously been about one one twelfth of the UK value. So that was that was interesting. I don't understand Really? Really? I don't know. Okay, well, if you sell, if you sell 300,000 copies of a book in England. Correct. And 18,000 copies in the US. Yeah, there's something wrong. So, but what there's is something wrong? What is it? What, like, why was it not doing well in the States? And what were they doing so well in England? What was wrong? Well, Rushi was in England, so he was more visible and, and known to people in London. But um, my view was, well, you know, the Brits have shown what can be sold of this author. The U.S. market has not had a parallel success. And so you could argue that the publishers were not doing their job properly. And and so let's get a publisher who is engaged in business in both uh, the U.K. and the U.S. and get them to, as it were, combine the potential sales in the UK and US and take a more robust view of what can happen in the US because of what has happened in the UK. Let's not get a publisher who says, well, he sold 18,000 copies of his last book, so we're going to pay him as though he'll sell 20,000 copies of this book. I'd much rather have the publisher saying, well, in England, they sold 300,000 copies of the book, so we're going to pay you a, a, a figure we can do the same job in the US. But I guess the point is, are they two different markets or aren't they? Is the fact that he's British and living in England, does that mean it? Or is it the, the effort of the, of the publisher? What is it? Well, I had two experiences that were uh, crucial to understanding this. One was when we took on a, a slew of Japanese writers and I had an arrangement in, in Tokyo and I'd never been to Japan before. I talked to some people who knew the Japanese culture and, and, and market pretty well. And they said the, the key thing to understand, Andrew, is don't behave like yourself when you go to Tokyo. And I said, really? Uh, what do you mean? And I said, well, when you start a meeting in Tokyo, you don't click your briefcase open and say, let's do it. Here are the five things I want to discuss, and we can conclude this meeting in 20 minutes. You say, 
it's so interesting to come in from the airport and see the snow on top of Mount Fuji and, and the wonderful streets of Tokyo and, and the Imperial gardens are, are so attractive and, and, and the, uh, the buds on the trees in the spring are beautiful and calm down in other words. <laughs> and they said, you have to do that. And then I flew, you know, that endless flight to Tokyo, got no right. sleep. Uh, went into the meeting, clicked open the briefcase and said, like that, and it worked out pretty well. So when I opened an office in London, obviously Americans are seen with a, a combination of oh, yeah. uh, dismissal and disdain by the Brits uh, yeah. who figure that, you know, we don't speak English properly and, and we're vulgar. Now all you care and, about is money. That's what they think. So, um, and I remember actually talking to Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone because Jan had tried to uh, uh, get an edition of Rolling Stone going in London with in partnership with Mick Jagger. And what Jan told me was, well, the thing about the Brits is you can never get them to show up at the office in the morning because they don't <laughs> like to come to work in the morning. And they like to leave early and they take very long lunches. And so to a certain extent, we had to uh, impose an American business practice uh, in the UK. And that took a while. It took a time to uh, motivate and identify the right uh, colleagues in the UK. Uh, we now have, you know, 25 people in the UK office and everybody works very hard and very well. So what, you calling the Brits a bunch of uh, laggards? No, I just think with the extensive history and uh, imperial um, uh, record of the country, uh, there is a certain self-satisfaction that exists in England that does not exist in the more neurotic and striving uh, psychology of Americans. Okay, but that still doesn't answer my question. You saw there were 300,000 sales. Of Midnight's Children and Shame. The two big novels before the Satanic Verses were Midnight's Children and Shame. Right. Midnight's Children and Shame had sold about 300,000 copies each in England. Correct. Prior to uh, his writing the Satanic Verses. In right. the U.S. market, however, they had sold twelve or 18,000 copies. Right, so there's right. a great disparity between the U.K. and the U.S. sales. What explains that? I think publishers failed to fully appreciate the value of what they had. So they, they what? They didn't put enough marketing money behind it in the States? Is that it? Well, my view was if they paid, you know, five hundred thousand uh, dollars instead yeah. of the twenty thousand they were paying, right. they, more of an incentive. they'd figure out how to recover their investment uh, more rigorously <laughs> than they had previously. <laughs> okay, okay, I get it. I guess let's look at. We're moving on to page two of my three pages of questions here. Okay. Yes, I, this is interesting, too. Advan I don't know why everyone's so fired up about advances. I mean, you get the money up front. Sure, I understand that. But if it's a great book, 
you're going to get that money. It's just going to take a year or two or, or whatever. It, it kind of evens. And then once you've earned back your advance, you're, why is it so important to get this money up front? Usually because the writers are making very little money and, and they have immediate needs, rent, gas and electric, food, uh, socializing. And no, I know, but that's a certain, a certain size of advance, but the, the advances are freaking gigantic. For some people, not for others. I mean, many, many people that writers we represent make $50,000 a year or less. Uh, yeah, I, I do know that. Yeah. It's pretty hard to live in New York City on the, that kind of money. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, proposed merger between Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House? Um, I think, basically, uh, Penguin Random House is a very good corporate owner. I use the example, I, I introduced Luis Schwartz, who runs a Brazilian publishing company called Compania das Letras, to John Makinson when he was uh, the head of Penguin Random House, or at that time, Penguin. Okay. Uh, he was interested in expanding internationally, and uh, Luis had a beautiful house and needed um, an infusion of uh, financial support. Over the course of time, Penguin Random House has, has gained uh, full control of Compania, and their ownership has not changed the program that Luis outlined for his publishing house. It has rather enhanced Luis's ability to build the house in the way he wanted to build it. So some companies, when they acquire tend to uh, homogenize the acquisition with the rest of their holdings. PRH, I think, has a different strategy and a, a wiser one, in my view, which is to, as it were, enhance the value of what they've acquired rather than integrating it into a greater uh, uh, strategy uh, and, and somewhat uh, diminishing the uniqueness of the property they've acquired. So I think that what Simon & Schuster needs is support, financial support, sales, marketing, etc., all the back office uh, aspects of publishing. And, and they need an investment to support their program. Their program is, is strong, is good. For a long time, they've, they've wanted uh, support from Viacom that has been slow to come. My feeling is PRH has demonstrated with its prior acquisitions that they uh, have this strategy of, of supporting uh, what they acquire and right. allowing it to remain independent uh, in, in strategy. And so on balance, I thought that the acquisition of Simon & Schuster by Penguin Random House would enhance the value of Simon & Schuster and let it do more of what it wanted to do and do it better. Funny, because whenever I hear that story, that type of talk, that each one of these these houses that have been conglomerated, that they have independence and editorial integrity, and you know they're focusing on the local. I just I just kind of figured, no, that's that's bullshit. It's they're just trying to maximize profit. They're not allowing for independence. Well. They're, 
of the course, producing it, staff, you know, they're making it more efficient. They're getting rid of people that, you know, you're not allowed to, 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 to publish books that, that won't make a certain profit. I mean, there's all of that. Well, that's a problem. It's a challenge and different owners uh, behave differently uh, with their acquisitions. Uh, the Holtzbrink Group, for instance, has behaved very well in terms of their acquisition of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in the U.S. And I would say that under the Holtzbrink ownership, Farrar, Strauss has continued to grow and develop on the plan Roger Strauss first laid out for it. And it is more like Farrah Strauss because it is owned by Holtzbring than it would have been if it were not owned by Holtzbring. Roger Strauss had some very spicy adjectives to describe you. I loved him. Well, that's that you do now, but back at back in the day, wasn't it? Vicious? I always loved him. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was vicious. Him. I thought, I thought it was, it was... A wonderful, wonderful character. Very amusing. A lot of fun <laughs> to talk to. What would happen is we would have a fight. And <laughs> then I would call his uh, assistant, uh, Peggy. And Peggy. I would say, Peggy, I feel so badly about my last... Uh, did you write fuck you very much or did he write fuck you very he much? He did. He did. Okay. But what I would have to do is I would have to grovel a bit and invite Roger to lunch. And Peggy would say, not yet, Andrew, not yet. I think maybe in a couple of weeks he'll agree to have lunch with you. So then I would ha- get him to agree to have lunch with me. I would go to his restaurant. I would pay for the lunch. I would kowtow a lot. And then I'd be forgiven. Right. right. It was great. Well, but what, he was very pissed off that you, you took... Susan Sontag away from him. I didn't take Susan Sontag. He was pissed off that I uh, analyzed the value of Susan's work and took back the foreign rights. He was pissed off about Philip Roth. Your relationship with the publishing house is it's designed to be adversarial in a way. I I I think that every writer has, you know, at least in potential, uh, the problem of uh, seeing the revenues that accrue to a book as a sort of zero-sum equation. And they feel, well, the publisher is doing better than I'm doing. I live in a small studio apartment on the Lower East Side, and they live in a skyscraper at Midtown. And so uh, it's not fair. I want a skyscraper at Midtown uh, to live in and let them operate out of my studio apartment on the Lower East Side. Uh, so there's a kind of zero-sum issue that arises. And, you know, I, I remember uh, when we were dealing with William Maxwell for the first time. Yeah, and you did a nice did. job for him. I've always been paid $10,000, Andrew, and I don't want to be paid more. And I said, look, Bill, you know, I get it. I come from New England. I know this philosophy. But the fact of the matter is, if they pay you $20,000, they'll do more for your work than if they pay you ten. And so he finally agreed to allow me to charge Knopf more than $10,000 for his work. And it was it was a struggle and an ordeal, but my my view was Maxwell's work is is spectacularly interesting, and it's it's worth more than he's being uh, paid. So, you know what I'm getting here is 
the bigger the advance, the harder the publishing house works for you. That's the main thing. Well, that's uh, that's just basic economics. If if they pay a million dollars, presumably they will struggle a bit harder to recover their investment than if they pay ten thousand dollars. Right, but uh, and again, though it's in the end, the the author will get roughly the same amount. It's just. You're putting it up front. There's more of a risk. You're scaring them more. Now you sound like uh, Deborah Rogers. <laughs> I used to have this discussion with her. She's like, I like it when my authors recover their advances and, <laughs> and earn royalties. And I said, Deb, yeah, it's a cost of money issue. I mean, either the publisher is is uh, sitting on the money or the author is sitting on the money. Right. And believe it or not, it is in the author's favor to have the money in the bank uh, rather than yeah. having the publisher have the money in the bank. So. <laughs> okay, okay. What percentage of your money do you make off dead authors versus live authors? I, I haven't done that piece of analysis. We probably should. But I would say, you know, back of the envelope calculation would be maybe 15%. Only 15% off the, off the dead ones? You're kidding. Maybe more. Huh? You've got these great, great names and you've got a ton of them. They must sell to universities and like, you know, they must. Yeah, okay, 20. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done the math. Okay. Because I'm not really, you know, I'm not a financial speculator. I'm a literary agent. And what I really care about is the books. And, you know, we have an accounting department and they take care of the money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, we're solvent. I know that. And uh, that's about (laughs) as far as my interest goes. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. You don't end up under a bridge then? No. Okay. Are you still dissatisfied with the rights that you're getting from ebooks? Well, I, I think they should be closer to 50% than 25%. And I made a big effort to uh, make that point but the effort was not roundly appreciated by the publishing industry. Why not? <laughs> Gosh, I, I think they felt that 25% was better for them and 50% was not so good. They do like money for nothing though, right? <laughs> My point was that the production costs of ebooks yeah. are markedly lower than they are for printed books and yeah. therefore a greater share of the revenue should accrue to the author. Just sort of makes sense. You, you're very logical, right? You come out with these damn logical arguments all the time. Well, I've spent 42 years studying this industry, so hopefully I've learned something. <laughs> uh, how come you're called the most feared agent in publishing? Why, why, why is this? I think it's because uh, of two things. One, we fully understand that we are employed by the writers we represent, that we are servants, basically. And so what we express is very close to what the writer feels and what the writer wants. 
we don't approach things from the mediator position of, of um, understanding the difficulties of the publishing business and explaining them to authors so that they are more realistic in their aspirations. It's not our business. Our business is to understand what the author wants, to talk through what the author wants, and then to present that to the publisher. We're working for the author. So the undiluted uh, aspirations and requirements of the author are sometimes a bit difficult for the publisher to deal with because they feel that their uh, burdens have not been fully appreciated. So that leads to the perception that, that, you know, we're aggressive. I, you know, I think if they heard what the author had to say, that would be aggressive. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> no, you're a buffer, are you? That's what you are. <laughs> no, we're a servant. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, we, we know who's running the show and it's the author. It's, it's not the publisher. Well, you know what? It seems used to be that the great publishing houses were the most important brand, but now it's the author that's the most important brand. doesn't really even matter what publishing house they go to. Well, I think it matters a lot, actually. And I think the curation of uh, publishing houses is very important. You know, I, I think that some houses that have meant a lot to writers mean less to writers now. And I think that's regrettable in a way. I think that's why I love Faber so much. Yeah. Faber is a very good example for our Strauss is a very good example. You know, Gallimar is a very good example. Compania das Letras is a very good example. Yeah. You opened a bookstore in Greenwich Village. I had a big library uh, at uh, Harvard, uh, a lot of books that I used to have shipped over from Oxford, uh, from that bookstore that is now being acquired by Waterstones. And I had a lot of Greek texts and uh, Latin texts and history and philosophy and stuff. And then I left Cambridge and I had all these books and I didn't know what to do. So I... uh, rented a uh, storefront and put them in the bookstore and opened for business. As you can imagine, business was sparse. <clears throat> Didn't you have Bob Dylan as a customer? Is that what you said? Oh, not a regular customer, an occasional customer, and John Cage, yeah. One of your first, one of your first customers with the agency was I.F. Stone, and he was important to my father, who set up his own newsletter years ago. Really? Yeah. So I Lovely. Yeah, I I love that. Uh, And, of course, you set to work on him by quoting him Greek. I'd studied at Harvard with uh, a professor called Albert Lord, who, uh, with Milman Parry, uh, worked on the Serbo-Croatian folk singing uh, tradition and discovered that uh, in the Serbo-Croatian rendition of their epics, they employed a system of pitch accents so that an acute accent, your voice would go up, a circumflex, it would go up and down, a grave, it would go down. And Lord said uh, memorably uh, in this uh, graduate seminar I took, 
very small class. Uh, he was very old. And he taught us uh, that if we went to Oxford or Cambridge, people would uh, assume that Athenian aristocrats of a, of a weekend afternoon would sit under an olive tree and listen to a blind man say, And he said, as you can imagine, this is not a uh, proper accompaniment for a, a solid lamb sandwich. And they weren't hearing that. Uh, what they were hearing was pitch accented, uh, as we see in the Serbo-Croatian uh, singers. And so it would have sounded more like, And he said, now, that you can imagine listening to for an hour. And that is what was presented uh, to the audience by Homer and his affiliates. And it was such a beautiful thing. And, and we used to practice. We'd come into uh, the class and we'd sing a passage of Homer. And I remember, you know, singing it to Ezra Pound in Venice. I mean, it really yeah. made an impression on me. And I, I sang it to Izzy Stone, and he was studying uh, the trial of Socrates, and it made yeah. an impression on him, and, and we bonded on that basis. So, I mean, really, he wanted to do business with you because he saw that you were serious about literature. What I said to Izzy, who had also been paid $10,000 a book by Random House, and his books were largely out of print, was if you get paid $10,000, there will be one copy of your book spine out in the back of the store. If you're paid $100,000, there will be 30 copies of your book piled up at the front of the store. And uh, this is pre-Amazon. And, and, you know, guess which will sell better? Uh, and you know you're working on the trial of socrates you're going blind it's a big struggle and uh you need a six-figure advance uh and if if i can get you that uh then i would predict that the trial of socrates will be a bestseller which is exactly what happened and it was that was the first arrangement i made and it, it it confirmed my understanding of the fact that if a publisher pays a hundred thousand dollars they'll do more than if they pay ten thousand dollars yeah it's so interesting because I, I hadn't really reflected on that i mean i just see it as a money grab by the by the author and, and sort of a, a sharing of risks and rewards by the agent and the and publisher but but of course, it's it really is a guarantee that that the publishing house is is going to work harder. Well, I was always uh, I I thought the way things used to work, and this is in the eighties, they work differently now. But the way things work is a publisher would fill out a profit and loss statement in two columns. Top yeah. left column would say author's name, title projected length of the book, retail price, etc. And then lower right-hand column would be the advance that they were offering. And so, so they would start with the number in the lower right-hand uh, uh, entry being $20,000. But then there'd be competition, and they would just 
erase the $20,000 and substitute 30, 40, 60, 75, 80, 100, and they would adjust retroactively all the numbers going back to the author's name to support their their desire to acquire the book for now $100,000 rather than 20. And uh, so that piece of paper would then be filed when they uh, acquired the rights. And the manuscript would eventually come in and uh, the editor would uh, take down the piece of paper and say, oh, I really have to like this book. And I do. And uh, we're going to have to print 35,000 copies of this book. Now I'll read it. Uh, Right. So they look at that number and they say, well, they have an investment in the book's success, because if it fails, it's down right. to them and they will yeah. you know, either lose their job or well, be promoted. It's not just promotion. It's everything throughout the whole company. Exactly. The sales Very force will be told we have a big investment in this book. We need to recover right. our investment. Right. So please, when you talk to, you know, lovely books in Minneapolis, tell them they need to take 12 copies rather than four, you know, goes all the way down the chain. That's so interesting. Most people, I think, might just see it as, if not greed, then sort of a money grab, but it's, it's, it's a guarantee of, uh, of good service. Well, the other thing I thought, you know, there used to be these wonderful double-page spread ads for Danielle Steele, and they would say, America reads Danielle Steele, or America wants Danielle Steele, or something. And I thought, (laughs) America doesn't really want Danielle Steele. Publishers (laughs) want Americans to want Danielle Steele because they've paid her so much money, and they've got to recover it. It's like saying, you know, American America wants love in the afternoon or whatever the daytime television is. No, they don't. They've got nothing else on the goddamn television in the afternoon. So they watch it. It's like politicians saying Americans want this. You know, they're talking for the whole freaking nation. Uh, One of the reasons I think that you're feared or criticized is for poaching other agents, clients early on. Publishers were critical of you because basically you're getting more money from the author. Other agents are critical of you because you're making them look bad. You talk about their, them having little spider plants in their windows. <laughs> well, I think the, uh, you know, the driver of the business is the author. And if right. an author's rights are not being properly administrated... Uh, you know, it's like driving past a great estate and seeing a squalid garden in the front. You, you know, know what? Sorry, I just clicked in. You're big on Voltaire, and he talks about cultivating the garden, doesn't he? That's what we got here. Il faut cultiver son propre jardin. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. But instead of cultivating my own garden, I'm cultivating everyone else's. <clears throat> I'm a gardener. You've got a nice garden. Come on. No. <laughs> got a very small <laughs> bunch of roses. That's all. No, I'm not talking literally, of course. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't, do you work, you have to work with contracts. I heard that you do, you know, lots of what your early stuff was, was just a handshake. That- I used to, oh, uh, we don't have contracts with the writers we represent because I feel strongly they should be able to fire their agents 
if the agent's not doing the job. That is proper from the author's perspective. And it's a good discipline from the agent's perspective because, you know, if, if your employer doesn't like you, they should be able to fire you. I feel the same way about employment law in the U.S., which is considerably easier than in the U.K. or France, where it doesn't matter how incompetent you are. If you've got a job, it's very hard to get rid of you. It was odd. You requoted as saying that that you don't have a personality of your own. You take on your author's identities. What's that all about? Bad genes, I guess. Uh, Hollow genes. <laughs> I've always been more interested in the other guy than I am in myself. And I've always adopted the characteristics of the people I admire. So right. I adopted Gillen Aitken's uh, signature. I adopted many aspects of Susan Sontag. Uh, right. You know, I, I, I just, in the same way that, that I... You know, I'd rather be reading a good book than I would be taking a walk and whistling. It is the the nature of other people that uh, intrigues me. And uh, I sort of admire characteristics that people have uh, to such a degree that I, I think I should probably behave that way, too. <laughs> And that runs from my signature to everything else. It's just a, I'm like a compilation of other people's attributes. It's not bad uh, to be that way if you're an agent, because really your job is is to fully understand what your employer wants and the nature of his or her work. And, and to be able to reflect that when you talk to publishers in a negotiation, to reflect that with entire sympathy. You've adopted yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I mentioned that after I would have dinner with Susan Sontag it, and we left the restaurant, you wouldn't know which of the two people walking out of the restaurant was Susan Sontag. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that. That's that's not no way. You got, I was I was speaking figuratively. Okay, okay. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> yeah, I mean you have to persuasively describe an author with admiration. I mean that's what Well you have to believe it. You can't yeah, fake it, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and my view was surely these people representing Danielle Steele can't actually believe this work has any value it is transparently valuable yeah, i know i know but the thing is it sells so freaking much yeah and donald trump has a lot of supporters too yeah okay yeah. that is a sad reflection of something what about finally what about andy warhol his influence on you uh it was very strong i'd had a very traditional education and when I came to New York, I finally got around to meeting Warhol, and he took that education and turned it absolutely upside down and right side front. He just, everything that I believed in, he, he as it were, showed the mirror image of that. And it was a sort of Zen-like uh, education that he conveyed in conversation. I, I was just both frightened and amazed by... Uh, the uh, the brilliance of his uh, way of looking at the world. 
I just don't get Warhol. I think he was kind of like, I know he was very intelligent thinker and he came up with some amazing concepts, but I just think his persona was so fatuous and <laughs> it just, uh, it just bothered the hell out of me. Now, I, mean, I did talk about this with, with Blake Gopnik who wrote the biography. What did you, I still don't get what you got. You flipped your education. Like what? He, what he was, he was uh, very funny. First of all. Okay. That's good. He was very Zen-like. Um, I mean, if you look at the history of his factory, it reminded me very much of a book uh, called Zen and the Art of Archery. I know that, yeah. That looked at the effect of a teacher uh, on his students in Japan. Right. And what would Aren't happen... Aren't you the arrow? You're the arrow, right? Aren't you? Or I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the bystander. Um, and what would happen with these students is under the curation of the Zen master, they would feel... Uh, more intelligent, they would receive their education, they would feel good, and then the master would send them out into the field, at which point they would wither and die. And what, what you'd see with the kids at the factory was that while they were in the factory and in Andy's films and stuff like that, they would feel very special and they would fly around to Italy and hobnob with Carlo Ponti and Mastroianni and others. And then they'd come back to New York and he would move on in his work and leave them aside and they would realize that actually they were uneducated children who had no gifts and so they would either kill themselves or fall apart totally uh, jump out the window many people did oh, go to drugs of course yeah they would die like like zen students of the zen master and he was very much like a zen master he had a tremendous charisma he was extremely generous uh, with me. I mean, he, he spent a lot of time talking to me for no purpose at all that I could. What did you learn from him? Well, I asked him what his uh, favorite painting was. And he said he didn't like paintings because they occupied space. So his favorite painting was a hole in the wall. And okay, you can dismiss that. But then if you think about it, a hole in the wall is a, a moving picture because you see through the hole in the wall to another space and that changes and people come and go on it. And it's, it's like an early version of a film and uh, it doesn't take up space. Was, uh, you know, he was very, uh, he was profound is what he was. He was profound. And how'd that help you with being a literary agent? Just, uh, I think it increased my intelligence. I, I, I had learned okay. certain things at St. Paul's School in Harvard, and I learned certain things from Andy. And what I learned from Andy was, was as valuable as what I learned at Harvard. He was, he was an extraordinary teacher. Okay. Hilariously funny. Yeah, this is so good. If you're, if you're a teacher that make you laugh, you're, yes. The future of the business, where is it going? Well, I think actually what we've seen in, in the COVID period uh, with publishers' profits soaring, uh, which is not entirely attributable to the fact that they don't have long and boozy lunches and drinks appointments with authors anymore. I think the fundamentals of the business are very strong. 
you know, the last year has shown extraordinary uh, uh, profitability for publishers and for for authors. So it's been very good. So, you know, when I was thinking about how to build the agency, I thought, well, you know, you have to build an agency that is not entirely dependent on the bestseller list, but actually has fundamental strength. So if you get hit by a rock, you're still going to survive. And yeah. and that fundamental strength comes from Borges, Calvino, Nabokov, etc. And uh, the younger writers come up and they, you know, vary in terms of uh, how their work does. But the size and the authority and the continuing sales of uh, authors of quality, many of whom have departed is 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 critical the fundamentals of the publishing industry uh similarly are very strong and uh you know people there's only so much netflix people can watch and uh eventually they are driven back to books and find a great uh consolation i mean books uh spare you the discomfort and embarrassment of having to speak to people and uh, you can just sit in the corner with Dickens, and uh, Dickens treats you very well if you sit in the corner with him. I would defy you to find someone as much fun as Charles Dickens to talk to on a given day. Well, wait a minute. I've had so much fun talking with you, I would put you uh, in his category. (laughs) But I have one more question, and that is, what have you got left to do? What do you want to do? Have you achieved everything you want to achieve? No, I will never retire. The greatest pleasure and excitement I have is is when a new book comes in and and you see the the beauty and idiosyncrasy of a a, a writer's work or perception. And so I just, uh, I love the work I do. I love the opportunity to read new work. I, I feel extremely lucky to have gone in the direction I went. And I think, you know, I love it. So I I will be doing it. um, As I tell my colleagues, I will be uh, running this company for at least six months after I'm dead. And are you going to get paid royalties? (laughs) That's a confidential issue. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, I, uh, I feel lucky to have, uh, been able to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. You're very kind, Nigel. And I enjoyed it as well. Many very thanks. Good. Okay. Bye-bye.